Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And today we're going to step into our roles at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com, and we're going to take you through our Q2 2023 market update. That's right. I went down to the dollar store and I got myself a brand new Magic 8-Ball. I gave it a couple shakes and now I know exactly how to invest all those people's money. Wait, wait, wait. You mean the 8-Ball we've been using has stopped working? Everyone's eight balls have stopped working apparently for the last two years. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, you know, that's actually a good way to kind of preface this whole conversation because what a wild, I think we're coming on three years now, 2019 year it's been, right? I mean, it's it's completely crazy. Four years, I guess, if you start, go back to the start of COVID. But um, all of our magic eight balls are broken and things do not work the way that they usually do. I think that is the perfect summary for the last couple of years. Yeah, it has been far from normal in terms of the way the stock market has gone over the last few years, be it the way that uh, fixed income essentially stopped working, the way certain sectors shot up like crazy, like energy, the way tech has come crashing back down. It's been very difficult to kind of map out where things are kind of heading towards and kind of a full disclosure, we don't just make up our own minds, just kind of picking and choosing and guessing. We've got access to about eight different insurance carriers and the smartest people that they hire with a very high salary. So we get to kind of pick their brains and figure out what's going on. Even a couple of weeks ago, I was in a meeting with some with an exec from JP Morgan. So we have access to a lot of good information. And even with all that, there has just been a lot of kind of People scratching their heads, trying to figure out what exactly has been going on the last two years. Head scratching and nail biting, I think, as well, right? We got a little bit of everything. But like Cam said, we have access not only to fund managers, so the people managing individual funds, which are always tailored to individual mandates, but the economists and the big picture thinkers and the sector specific experts and things like that. And of course, the daily BNN dose that uh, Cam is famous for. So we view our role as essentially aggregators of a lot of information. And if you've been listening for any period of time, you'll hear me say that I firmly believe investing in a lot of instances is a game of probability. Essentially what our job is and what the jobs of the economists are is to look at the different factors in the different components of the industry. And that can go from being company specific or sector specific or even the broader economy as a whole, and you try and look at it as what could possibly go wrong and what could possibly go well, and what are the odds that A happens over B. And from those kind of different branches of possibilities, you try and come up with some version of what we think could likely, maybe, possibly happen if our Magic 8 Balls do ever turn on properly again. Well, that's right. Because, well, we're talking about this on a personal finance podcast because a big chunk of people's personal finance is how they invest their money, be it through stocks, funds, RRSPs, TFSAs, hiding under a mattress, what have you. Understanding what the market is doing throughout the year is a big factor in how you plan out your personal finances now into the future, especially those who are in retirement age and you are living off of a RIF or a pension. 
Well, and even people that have pensions, pensions used to be kind of the safe place to go, but depending on the type of pension these days, pensions also have to find ways to find money when they're in shortfall positions. So that can fall either on a company or it can fall on individuals, depending on what type of plan you're in. Yeah, that's right. So let's kind of jump into the deep end. So let's kind of start with talking about the best advertised recession in many, many decades. We know it's coming. It could be here tomorrow. It could have been here already. It could be here in a couple months from now. But this is something that is kind of taking over the news cycle of investing in personal finance for a while now. Yeah, so this is a bit of a story about the big bad wolf, and he has people scared. I have had a number of people come to me over the last three to four months that have said, should I move everything to cash right now? GIC rates are finally looking good, or at least they were before the most recent announcements by the Bank of Canada and the Fed. And people were saying, hey, if I can get 5% and just wait for a year, does that make sense? Yeah, that's been the big conversation we've been having, where People are just, yeah, it's kind of a cross between the big bad wolf and Peter and the wolf, where the one side there is, looks like a slowdown happening, but at the same time, it feels like it's being puffed up and talked about at nauseum before anything has really happened. Now, we still kind of follow some economists that will probably see like a short, shallow recession, which will essentially just kind of reset inflation. It won't just be a dragged out inflation, depression, recession we saw like in the 70s. But this is also why like, the Bank of Canada and the Fed haven't gone super aggressive with their rate increases and why the Bank of Canada has even held on, which of course gets them some slack because kind of putting back on the nothing is working the way it should hat. So the Bank of Canada has been raising interest rates and lower inflation, but at the same time, jobs haven't been dropping off. They've actually been increasing in Canada month after month. Like we just had the March jobs numbers come in and we had 35,000 jobs added and in and unemployment held firm at 5%, which is near record lows. And this isn't just like fly-by-night jobs. A lot of the gains were in transportation, warehousing, finance, and real estate. So those are good quality jobs, which is exactly what we want to see. I mean, you kind of maybe shrug your shoulders a bit if you see jobs and they're all in retail or they're seasonal or they're temporary part-time, but it doesn't look like that's the story right now. So good quality jobs being added and not subtracted is a huge plus in our books for the overall economy. And like you said, transportation, warehousing, finance, those are solid sectors. Those are all pretty fundamental and foundational to our economy here in Canada, real estate as well. So that is a very, very positive thing to see. And with the Bank of Canada, like we said, they've already kind of broadcast that they think they're at the end of their rate hike cycle, but they are really, what they're trying to do is be forward looking. So they give us guidance that says, we think it's going to take another year and a half ish to kind of see the full effects of the tightening cycle that we've been going through for the last while now. So with that in mind, they're saying, let's not pump the brakes any further. What we want to do is just wait, pause, and see the effects of what we've already done happen. Because like I said, this flow through effect does take a bit of time. 
Yeah, and it's that delay that kind of gets people impatient with the Bank of Canada. Like even we talked about in our episode on the federal budget, they were expecting inflation to drop back down to like 2.5% by the end of the year, which I think is a little ambitious. A lot of the other economists I've been reading have been calling for like 35 maybe by the end of this year. But again, it shows that it takes a while for the Bank of Canada's meddling around to actually impact like we're probably just starting to see now the very first rate hike like a year ago fully taking effect into the economy so this could drag out for another six to eight months as the real impact of like the very first rate interest rate increases are starting to hit because all this is to kind of claw back on inflation but again like i said bank of canada and probably more so the fed is concerned that they're not seeing jobs disappear which again is morbid and twisted but at the same time in canada our wage growth is up to 5.4 percent which is well above the 20-year average of three percent so you see wages going up jobs are getting strengthened but at the same time inflation isn't letting go so this was kind of the double side of these rate hikes that we saw where a lot of workers whether they were union or public sector things like that were expecting or negotiating higher than usual compensation packages because inflation was as high as it was. Which is what we're seeing with the CRA right now. Oh yeah, they're on strike right now, aren't they? Wow, that's a big one. I mean, that's a huge employer federally, of course. So the other part is that there's an expectation, like Cam was saying, to see jobs impacted in a classical recessionary, or not even recessionary, in a classical tightening scenario. And like we said, other than tech, that really just has not yet been the case. So we've said before, we said it in our last market update at the beginning of the year, watching to see how different sectors are going to be impacted from a jobs point of view is going to be a very, very interesting part of this conversation and part of how well the economy as a whole will fare because our bottom line is always going to be we take it down to the individual person you and me and their ability to spend the more people that retain their jobs well hopefully they can still pay their mortgage or their rent hopefully they're still going to buy groceries they're still going to go for some entertainment so that means it wouldn't be that bad overall but like we said the surprises are yet to be seen so when we kind of take a look again at the macro picture, and when we kind of take a look at how we're kind of saying, okay, it's anyone's game at this point in time, what we typically see happen is when there's a bunch of uncertainty like this, there will be one event, and no one will know what that event will be until it happens. No one will know if it'll be a company, a sector, or something broader globally, even like wars or things like that can can play. But once whatever the event is will happen, it'll impact that area first and it'll have a flow out effect to the rest of the economy. Because like we said, we're all waiting for the big bad wolf. We all know he's hiding somewhere in grandma's pajamas, but we don't know when he's going to pop out. So essentially, we just kind of have to wait and see where these changes are going to start taking place. Yeah, see where the changes are taking place, where the downtrends are happening and where the uptrends are happening. Like just kind of circling back to those jobs numbers, what I found interesting was that half of those new net jobs happened in Ontario. And that's a province that is kind of being poised for growth with the new green initiatives that are coming, with the new Volkswagen battery plant and a whole host of other bigger projects that are kind of being lined up. That's a place that's probably going to see some benefit in those areas. But again, we need to start seeing effects kind of across the country in order for things to kind of 
work their way through what could be a small recession and then just kind of get inflation back under control. Because a lot of the economists I've been reading and hearing from have kind of saying that we're kind of nearing the end of this inflation cycle, where at the beginning, it was all about energy and shipped goods, which was the biggest things impacting inflation. Now we've kind of come to the more of the tail end where it's housing and food. And probably the last sector that's going to have a big inflation will be the services. And when we kind of see the service inflation bubble, not long after that, we'll kind of see the recession reset and everything should kind of quote unquote normalize again. Normal is a bit of word that people maybe might have lost faith in. I think we've all lost a bit of a sense of normal, but I agree. Well, how about normal as in pundits aren't talking about recession anymore? That would be wonderful. Uh, or how about normal as we reset the cycle and start into the next new cycle, which typically means that we'll be in a high growth period again. Because once you get through a down and a low, you usually restart the engine and you go back up through that circle that uh, takes you from, you know, the good to the bad and around the clock again. Yeah, because even on the manufacturing side, the PMI index in Canada has been dropping. So which means that orders are down, inventories are ballooning. So they're starting to slow down because they just got so much inventory that isn't being sold. So why bother putting in new orders, which again, just kind of adds to the slowdown of the overall economy. So, I mean, it's sounding like a bit of a mixed bag. When you look at the actual data out there, like we said, jobs, overall good. Some provinces like Ontario, overall very, very good. Um, some things like the PMI that Cam just mentioned, not so good. Because like I said, we're starting to have a glut in some areas of buildup of, of inventory. And when you compare that to what you're hearing on the street, you're hearing things like uh, Bloomberg that's putting the Canadian recession watch at around 97% this summer. I mean, my goodness, 97%. I'm not a gambler, but if someone told me that I would have a 97% chance of winning something, I'd be all over that. Now, obviously, it's hard to quote unquote win in a recession. Oh, oh, I know, I know. You can shortchange into a lot of stocks, like how TD suddenly became the most shorted stock in North America. Oh, are we going into the short selling world? That is a completely different conversation. But <laughs> yes. It, but it doesn't help in situations like this, where <clears throat> TD is a fundamentally sound bank. But at the same time, someone said, ooh, let's make, some, let's make some short money off of this. And then a couple weeks later, they probably lost a whole bunch of money and nothing happened. Well, that's right. And I mean, that speaks to timing it as well, right? So even if Bloomberg is telling us, hey, this summer, 97% chance, meh, the market doesn't necessarily agree. And the market doesn't necessarily have that triggering event yet. We don't know. And that's the thing. And anyone who tells you that they know with that level of certainty has my eyebrows way up to the top of my forehead because I don't know how to quantify something like that. Until we know what's going to tip the scale, the fundamentals otherwise aren't looking as completely terrible as they should be with a 97% chance in my mind. No, and that's still sort of a light recession, which, which essentially means that GDP goes below zero. Like some of the projections I've seen, it could be as low as like negative 0 0.2, negative 0 0.3, which is negligible as opposed to like a drop in GDP of like four to 5%. But some people are a little more optimistic. I saw one report from RBC Global Asset Management had a 70% chance of recession in quarters Q3 and Q4. I'm seeing some similar numbers down in the States. One thing I did find interesting, though, was with Walmart, with their last quarterly report, they talked about how they have an expectation that holiday sales in Q4 are actually going to come down this year. So that's kind of one of those 
internal markers that some companies are kind of getting themselves ready for some sort of slowdown near the end of the year. That is actually very interesting. And like you said, that comes through reading these actual reports, these actual financial reports that are publicly available for publicly traded companies. But like you said, if a company as big as Walmart is saying, we expect that by Christmas time, Christmas, which is usually open the wallets and go season, is not going to be that this year then they are projecting tightening in their budget. Now, think of it from this point of view. If, if I'm the CEO of Walmart and I want my stock to do well, if I lower my expectations today for something that's not going to happen until my Q4 report, that actually puts me in a solid position if, if essentially I'm able to beat those expectations, my stock will go up, right? But to Cam's point that they are expecting less money coming in, they could also be saying, hey guys, let's be prepared for this. Let's set the expectations right now that, hey, we're not going to see the same level of Christmas happy holiday spending that we usually do. Yeah, so they're kind of forward projecting that sales may not be as good, but they've also decided to compensate by this by automating more of their warehouse system. In order to uh, probably cut some staff, they're advertising as they're going to redeploy staff to more beneficial and more cost productive areas. But again, they are moving along the automation train to try and cut costs with this idea that it could be a rougher Q4 this year. Well, and can I make a comment here that this is probably going to be a little bit more long term than certainly the next few years. But as we see this trend of using machines and efficiencies more than people, our ability to use job numbers in the same capacity that we have in the past could be altered as different industries specifically make these big shifts to replace people's with machine and to replace time spent with overall efficiencies that are going to reduce man hours. So again, one of the classic ways of judging a recession or judging a contraction, looking at employment numbers, looking at sectors like we did right at the beginning of this, um, is essentially something that could become skewed in the next few years. So something that we need to keep our eyes on, what are the efficiencies? What are these automations that are taking place that are going to impact job hours? And how will that change the employability or maybe the number of people that will be left post-recession that may be out of jobs for other reasons than a broader economic tightening? Yeah, to kind of follow that up, the whole idea of efficiencies and layoffs and tightening of margins, this is something that's happened a lot over the last two years. With the kind of resurgence of people going back to work after COVID, people being laid off during COVID, what happened was, if you were paying attention to your quarterly reports, is that a lot of companies' net margins went up by quite a bit. They had more net income, their operating expenses were down, and this forced a lot of companies' stocks to kind of skyrocket because all of a sudden, traders and investors saw their margins so much better. So it pushed up their stock price. Now, something interesting I heard from the JP Morgan exec at a conference I was at recently, where they're pointing out that this could work in the opposite way and it could backfire for a lot of companies this year, because so many of them spent 2021 and 2022 becoming quote unquote more efficient through layoffs, automation, scaling back hours, scaling back projects. Now, all of a sudden in 2023, they won't have the same room to boost up net income to the same degree. So there is a concern that this will actually have a negative effect on company stocks, which 
depending where you sit, could be good or it could be bad. It could contribute to the recessionary feeling, or it could help a lot of these stocks kind of get back in line with their price to earnings ratios, where all of a sudden these companies that were trading really high for two years could actually come in pretty cheap. Like even some of the data I've been looking at, um, energy and financials right now are well, well below their 20 year averages on a PE ratio, which means they're cheaper compared to what their earnings are now. Yeah, and there's general sentiment out there that forward P.E. ratios are coming back into affordable territory. But beyond that, to your point, year-over-year comparisons is really how it's measured in terms of did a stock do good or did a stock do bad? Well, you've got to ask compared to what? And it's usually to the prior quarter or to the prior year. So you're right. Even if during COVID uh, companies leaned out, maybe they became more efficient, maybe they became less dependent on certain portions of their staff that they'd had prior, that has already occurred. So that's already, it's already happened, right? So now what can you do for me today is the question that the stock market is always asking. And it's the questions that our investors are always happening as they have expectations for their companies to make money over and over and over. But like you said, Think about it in any industry. Once you have a really, really, really good year, and if you're benchmarking, how do you top that? Well, for some companies, it comes through cannibalizing itself. Like, I'll pick on CP Rail. So years ago, when Hunter Harrison came in, they just tried to strip out all the costs. They shut down locomotives. They cut down lines. They cut down service just to push up the net income. Now, I'm picking on one company, but a lot of them do this to different degrees. But you can only cut and trim so much before your effectiveness at your core operating purpose becomes compromised. And that's always the tension between how much can I cut versus can I still operate as a functioning company without my competitors kind of steamrolling me afterwards? Well, and I think this is really the story that we're seeing play out in a large sense today, not the whole Hunter Harrison CP Rail play, but essentially the idea that a stock can appear to be growing and it can appear to be making money and it can look like it's performing very, very well because decisions were made to make cuts. Now, In that scenario, this will not last for a very long time. It might last for a couple quarters. Maybe it'll last for a year. Depends on the type of cuts and for how long. But appreciation in your stock price does not necessarily mean that the company fundamentally grew in any capacity. You've got to remember there's two sides to each equation. There's the side where you've grown and you've made more money. And there's the side where you've contracted and you've spent less money. And both have the same overall net effect of making you look more positive for the short term. But over the long term, only the one, only the actual pure true growth is what's going to be beneficial to carry that momentum forward for that stock. And with the growth and the increased profits that can be reinvested into the company, that's when you can start to see some of a more positive upward tend and a more positive expectation for that stock going forward. Yeah. And this is why the value stocks have had so much more attention over the last year and a half as opposed to the growth stocks. So the value ones are these ones that are driven by fundamentals, while the growth ones are the ones who are just trying to grow as fast as they can, cut costs as fast as they can, and just drive up their share price. This is pretty common among tech stocks, where you'll see the value ones are more like consumer staples, utilities, or just really solid blue chip companies. And because of this instability, volatility, and just running out of room to cut costs for a lot of places. This is why the value stocks are getting more popular and 
have actually been performing better kind of on the macro level than a lot of the growth stocks. Of course, there's always exceptions either way. Like even on the growth stocks, I'm starting to see like um, Apple and Microsoft finally kind of kicking the downward NASDAQ trend are starting to come back up. And it's a couple other tech companies too, but overall it's these value companies that are trying to kind of be the steady eddies. We will improve our sales, we'll improve our margins, we'll improve our growth in order to make our stock better along with our dividend, of course, as opposed to here's the hot flashy thing that'll appreciate 10% and then it could crash 40% later. Well, that's right. And I think part of understanding growth versus value is understanding where we are in the market cycle. And I agree 100% with what Cam was saying. Traditionally, at this stage in a market cycle, value does make more sense in the majority of the cases. Yeah. So that's why I said on the TSX, like energy and finance are at 20-year lows in terms of PE ratios. But at the same time, industrial tech and commercial services are all still very high relative to probably where they should be at this point in the market cycle. So it's very sector specific is what you're saying. So beyond the value and growth thing, there are a couple sectors that we're trying to keep a close eye on. Like one of them, as always, is the Canadian banking and finance sector, because you look at any Canadian equity fund, be it a seg fund or a mutual fund, it's always going to have probably at least 18 to 25% of finance in it. So the banks are a big part of most people's portfolios. Oh, and sometimes it can be way higher than that, especially if you're looking at a fund that has a pure Canadian mandate. And in this type of economy where debt and debt servicing costs are in question, our high debt to income ratios and debt servicing ratios are always a case for concern. Yeah, so all eyes are usually on the banks, especially as you go into a recessionary environment with high interest rates where mortgages could be at risk. So in general, the consensus is that the Canadian banks are still stable. They're seen as some of the most diversified, best funded, and kind of most stable among the Western nations. But at the same time, all the news about these uh, regional banks in the states that are kind of on shaky ground that could be better off does actually play into the Canadian banks because most people don't realize this, but a lot of Canadian banks actually have made a lot of inroads into the States. you got like RBC, TD, and BMO have all done several mergers and acquisitions of smaller banks in the U.S. to kind of expand their footprint out of Canada. And TD, which I mentioned was kind of the most shorted banking stock in North America, they kind of have a light on it because they are involved with uh, Schwab Bank down the state, which is kind of those regional ones who is just being targeted because it's regional. It is also their potential acquisition of First Horizon, which is probably under question right now because I'm sure TD wants a lot better price than what they were initially offered. So some people are thinking that if some more regional banks in the States fail, it could taint or tarnish the Canadian banks. It won't break them down and will destroy their stock, but it will strip down their net income and just kind of put some negative press against them. Well, and let's get back to the big bad wolf. Fear is the biggest tool that this guy has. So when an industry starts to shake, especially the banking industry, and there's anything kind of brought into question, that scares people. And the fear, in my mind, is almost maybe the biggest problem in a situation just like this, where yes, we might have a recession. Well, yes, we probably will have a recession. Definitely we'll have a technical one. But Will it be as bad as people think? I don't know, but the fear can cause behavior that will 
shift individual portfolios where, like we'd said at the beginning, people are selling everything that they've got and moving into GICs or cashing out completely and putting it under their mattress, the big bad wolf got them. It scared them enough that it caused them to take action that will impact them and their personal well-being for the rest of their life because there's been tons of research about selling at the absolute wrong time and how much damage that can do to your retirement income and your portfolio overall. Yeah, we have all kinds of fancy charts at the office that shows what kind of risk you take doing that. But even just talking about the fear cycle, within a, the week of Silicon Valley banks problems, signature banks problems, and Credit Suisse, we were inundated with a lot of phone calls ourselves, with people worried about, is everything going to come crashing down? Well, our general answer was, well, no, because for the most part, these banks failed because of bad management and bad decisions and a host of other things that people have talked and knowledge about. And some people think this could be the canary in the coal mine. It could be if the problem multiplies and continues. But at the same time, I feel this is more cases of just bad decisions producing bad fruit. Bad decisions in an overall environment that is not friendly to bad decisions. You can have a company that makes tons of bad decisions, but if the economy is overall good and strong and interest rates are low, you can kind of sweep those under the rug for a while and no one will be any of the wiser, especially if you write your financial reports in a way that makes it look like there is no problems, which of course is not ethical, but is something that we see happening all the time. And I mean, that was a red flag with the Silicon Valley story. Yeah, if I remember correctly, apparently KPMG gave them a clean bill of health because on the books, they looked like it was okay, but they probably didn't see a lot of the other issues that kind of led to the bad decision-making, the over-leveraging, the complete abandonment of their bonds, the bank runs. And the good thing is, though, because of different changes governments and central banks have made, we didn't see an absolute crash. Silicon Valley Bank got absorbed by other institutions, the the payroll was protected. The investments were protected. Credit Swiss got eaten up by a larger competitor. Again, the same thing. It wasn't like all of a sudden all of their depositors were out of money and they couldn't pay their staff. They didn't, they didn't lose their money. Everything was still protected as opposed to other times when banks have collapsed. Well, and I think that is one of the good ways that we've learned from the past. History has taught us that banks need to be able to be capitalized. I mean, here in Canada, we have things like CDIC, we have things like Assurus, we have different forms of insurance for the individual consumer who puts their money into these institutions. But on a broader conversation, if there are opportunists, right, if there are banks or other institutions that are capable of capitalizing at a very, 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 very bottom of the barrel discounted price, uh, then like I said, there may be some willingness to assume the responsibility like we've seen in this case. So if one smaller institution fails, I think the overall takeaway from this conversation should be that that really wasn't the end of the story. No. And to kind of move on now, if you want to put another drop in the pro recession bucket, you can look what is happening with a host of different REITs in Canada. So real estate income trust. So these are essentially investment options made up of commercial, industrial, and residential buildings and the money people make off of that. So over the last, well, month now, there's been a variety of different REITs in Canada that have essentially stopped paying out their dispersions or their dividends, mostly because of losses they're seeing in the office space segments where 
lot of people haven't gone back to work. Different companies are giving up their off space altogether. So a lot of these REITs are facing a lot of pressure because all of a sudden they have mounting vacancies. Some of them, like I said, have just stopped paying their dividends. Other ones are trying to redivest into residential properties like towers, not individual houses. But then again, that'll probably be down the road. But this is just another one of those things where there is some struggle. But at the same time, you can look at it as it's bad for the REITs if these different companies go more work from home. But for the companies themselves, it could be good because they're shedding lots of extra costs and overhead. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could make the argument that after staffing costs, rent is usually right right up there as well, right? I mean, rent can be a significant portion of a fixed expense that a company has to dole out month after month after month. And when you're looking at your fixed expenses as a corporation, you're essentially thinking, okay, I need to make X amount of dollars just to break even before I'm even thinking about turning a profit this month. Yeah. And this is just one of those examples where what is good for one industry is bad for another industry. And our job is determining which industry is better off not doing well when it comes to investments. Like for us, we'd rather see the larger companies shave their margins because we have very little invested in REITs, barely any at all with our clients. So that's kind of the way we look at it, where if a REIT fails, it doesn't hurt our clients. But if a whole bunch of large cap companies suddenly shave more expenses and improves their stock, that's good for our clients. When we are looking at the markets, kind of real estate, housing, and finance are kind of the two big things we're watching in Canada. Energy is going to remain volatile. Tech is probably going to be sunken down for the most part for the next little while until their prices kind of normalize and become attractive again. And because we are so invested in finance in Canada, we kind of have to watch the banks. And as long as they remain stable, it should limit the long-term worries that some people could have. Yes, bank stocks can be down probably like 20% year over year, year over year, some I'm seeing, but the fundamentals are still there. And we have to look past the next six months because again, what we do, we are trying to plan for like 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years for some people where, yeah, we're going to have a dip in the market right now. But it's also a good time to kind of buy up some of these well-performing companies or funds or what have you that are just trading at a discount right now and not needlessly overpaying, which what a lot of people did with the NASDAQ kind of after COVID. Well, that's right. And it goes back to the old argument that if you don't need to sell your stuff in the next six months for personal reasons and you're just kind of considering it because of a fear-based thought, then maybe it would make sense to kind of wait and see how these things play out a little bit more. Specifically, let's circle back to the very beginning in the jobs area. So that's how we saw a little snippet of how we saw the financial markets for our beginning of Q2 2023. And of course, this is something that we do over at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com. And this is something that we have a great number of discussions about, oh, geez, on a weekly basis. So I would say that our views are updating and changing as often as the market changes itself, because when you're managing money or when you're helping people make decisions about where to put their money, your view has to be able to adapt to circumstances as they change. So that is something that I think is widely important for anyone who is looking at this from an investment point of view. 
Yeah, and if you want to kind of keep the conversation going, you can head on over to our Facebook page is Personal Finance, and our discussion group is Personal Finance Podcast Discussion Group. If you want to keep talking about this, or if you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, or if you just want to kind of give us some feedback on what you think the market is going to do over the next year. That would be cool. Anyways, I think we'll wrap it up for now. So until next time, take care. And all the best.